This is Science Moab, a radio show exploring the science and learning about the scientists from the Colorado Plateau. I'm Christina, and on today's show, we have an interview about strategies to conserve biodiversity by conserving the diversity of landscape features in a concept called Conserving Nature's Stage with Dr. Paul Beyer. It's a good show. Stay with us. Fifteen percent of living species on Earth have been named. (laughs) So 85 percent of the species, we don't have a name, much less know where they are. Today we're talking about conserving nature's stage with Dr. Paul Beyer. Dr. Beyer is a conservation biologist in the School of Forestry at Northern Arizona University. He is passionate about the conservation strategy of conserving nature's stage as a way to conserve as much biodiversity as possible within protected areas. We begin our interview with Dr. Beyer explaining the concepts behind conserving nature's stage. So the idea behind what we call conserving nature's stage is to use diversity of abiotic features as a surrogate for biodiversity. And what are abiotic features? Yeah, so abiotic features would be things like uh, uh, soil characteristics, uh, soil nutrients, um, uh, soil uh, grain size, you know, portion of sand and clay and silt in the soil. Also things like topographic wetness, you know, how much water flows to a certain area, uh, elevation and aspect, solar insulation. Um, so all of these things that make up the environmental, um, all of the environmental factors that support life, and that's why we call it nature's stage. So it's the stage on which species play out their existence and their interactions. So the, there's a sort of a, I guess, a twofold appeal to conserving nature's stage. One is that if our goal, even right today, let's assume we don't have climate change, we just, just right now, I would like to identify the areas that will maximally conserve biodiversity. We don't know where anything is. Fewer than 15% of living species on Earth have been named. <laughs> wow. So 85% of the species, we don't have a name, much less know where they are. <laughs> so we have things for, for almost all... How do we all... know that? Ah, those are nest... <laughs> yes, <laughs> uh, that's, a, that, that's a very good question. There, there's been several attempts. Most recently it was about two, 2011. Mora and colleagues wrote a paper on how many species are there. So what they did is they did sort of accumulation curves uh, for phyla, classes, orders, families, you know, so how, how have we discovered species since Linnaeus started cataloging these things about uh, 300 years ago. And so for things like phyla, we haven't discovered any new ones for a few decades now, so we've reached a plateau. And for um, other broad taxa, you know, we can see these curves accumulate. For species, we're, we're still just on that steeply rising portion. 
But if we assume it has a shape similar to the accumulation curves for these higher level organisms, uh, they project <laughs> that'll asymptote around 10 million. Okay. It's pretty slick. Yeah. Clever <laughs> way to do it. Yeah. Uh, but it could be off by quite a bit. Right. But um, that, that's better than what we could have said uh, 15 or 20 years ago, which was somewhere between 5 and 50 million. <laughs> so right. we think it's, it's probably between 8 and 12 or so. And do we think these, are we thinking of what, what you know, maybe the average person thinks about when they think of species like a frog or a bird, or are we including microbial taxa? We're including everything. Everything. Yeah. But and the overwhelming majority of species are invertebrates. Um, Insects, spiders, um, springtails, and those other things that you'd be interested in that aren't quite insects, but they are to you and me. Yeah. Well, to other people other than you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so those are probably uh, 70, 75% of all species are insects, which is really curious. Most insects, of course, eat plants, <laughs> but they far outnumber <laughs> the number of species of plants that exist. Um, so, and those are probably the least cataloged, okay. too. Uh, so the insects are, we, we, we haven't named most of them yet. We're very far from most. We've probably named almost all uh, birds, mammals, or reptiles. And we're probably getting way, way, way over half of fishes. <laughs> but, uh, you know, for, for a lot of other things, we don't. We're, we're not even close. Yeah, so if we want to conserve all of these things, most of which we <laughs> haven't named yet, we need a surrogate, right? We, we can't wait till we find out what they all are and then where they are. You know, so even the species that we know pretty well, we don't have range maps for plants. You know, we do have crayon drawings, which means somebody says, oh, here's where I think red fur is. You know, so for some major tree species. But even those range maps, you take range maps, we have range maps now f for all bird species. But these are, uh, when we actually go and survey the range map, of any bird species, we'll find that it's absent at about 40% of the locations within its range. So these are just coarse uh, cartoon characterizations of where a species exists that are only about 60% accurate. Oh. Um, you know, it's, it's like Swiss cheese with a bunch of holes, but we ignore the holes and we call it the range map. <laughs> so, so again, how, even if I'm just interested in birds, uh, you know, how do I know where I'm going to find those birds, but I'm not interested in just birds. You know, I care about plants and invertebrates too. So we need some way to uh, identify areas that'll have uh, that uh, a set of areas that will encompass almost all species. Again, like we call this a coarse filter approach. It's a surrogate because we don't have the real information that we care about. So we take these um, surrogates, these coarse filters that we hope will grab most of them. By definition, that means it won't grab all of them. It will fail <laughs> in its ultimate goal. But if we can get 80%, that's huge. <laughs> so the, the idea is let's, uh, you know, so I'm promoting this idea. Well, let's use this diversity of these abiotic environments. And if we have a reserve network that captures all the abiotic conditions that support life, I think we got a damn good chance of conserving most, 80% or more, of the species on the planet. And then that becomes even more important in a, in a changing climate, too. You know, so, we, again, if we don't know where, what, who the species are, when we don't know where they are, 
Am I going to then also model where they're going to be and predict where they're going to be? That's like the ultimate in hubris. We're not going to figure that out in time to identify all those areas and conserve them. So this is, it's a shortcut. Um, and again, it's not, it's guaranteed not to succeed 100%, but I think it has a good chance of succeeding pretty well. Have ideas um, in this vein been implemented? Uh, no. Um, you know, in terms of prioritizing land, has there been any park that was uh, conserved because it's adding to the abiotic diversity of our conservation network? I'd say no. Uh, you know, I, I you know so, but I, I think it increasingly will be. It'll be among the factors. And again, I would never design a reserve solely based on abiotic diversity. We would also take everything we do know about biotic diversity. So if we know there's a rare orchid and five rare insects over here, that's going to increase the chance of that area being included in our protected area network. So along with what we know about today's biodiversity, you know, I think this would be a, another tool that I think will increasingly be used to help prioritize areas. The Nature Conservancy actually is using it. They have you know, they've divided, say, the United States up into eco-regions, and I forget how many. Uh, they have a couple hundred of them, I suppose. And formerly those were based just on plant community associations. And they said, we want to have, we want to represent all of our plant communities. And then as they realized, of course, climate change is going to disassemble all our plant communities. We need a backup strategy. You know, so they've, they've gotten on board with this. So they're actually revising some of their, what they call their portfolio areas, their high priority areas, to include, so they're not throwing away vegetation communities, they're saying we're still trying to grab those. There might be a, a, an outside chance that climate change will be canceled <laughs> and they'll still mean something, but can we, and what they've actually found is we can prioritize lands to conserve uh, these vegetation communities and biotic, abiotic diversity without increasing the total ask. So we can meet multiple goals with about the same percentage of the landscape. So it's a way of bet hedging. So we can we can we can follow the vegetation communities as a strategy. We can call it uh, use uh, abiotic diversity, nature stage as another strategy. We can aim for, for both of those without having to conserve you know, twice as much land. And and it gives us uh, another lottery ticket <laughs> in terms of the uh, prospects that we'll identify the right stuff. Why would you say conserving diversity is important? Because it's beautiful. <laughs> you, know, you know, I mean, we, we have the, the product of, uh, in round numbers, three billion years of evolution here. And it's just a magnificent thing to behold. And for the first time in those billions of years of history, one species is changing the planet in a way that's making life hard for the other 10 million species here. So I feel like we have a responsibility to preserve this, this, this beautiful um, legacy that, that we enjoy now. Um, you know, I mean, it's sad because we know we're going to not succeed. Um, we're going to lose a lot, but you know the the, the better we can, the better job we can do is just. Um, to me, I, I can't imagine personally something I'd rather spend my time doing. <laughs>
You describe yourself as someone who engages in unabashed activism for conservation. And I was just wondering if you've gotten any pushback from labeling yourself as an activist and being a scientist. Surprisingly, no. Uh, you know, I, I think this is just, uh, you know, I, I, well, I'm, I'm, I'm careful at it. <clears throat> you know, I'm, I'm careful when I'm saying these are my values, and I'm careful when I'm saying this is what the science tells me. So other than that, though, you know, th th this idea that you lose credibility by having values is, is just insane. You know, if you go into a room with managers, you're sitting down with, um, like at Pima County, the town of Oro Valley, the State Department of Transportation, the Coalition for Sonoran Desert Conservation, the Building Industry Association. Everybody in the room has values. Quite often it's printed on their letterhead, you know. And if I come in and say, I have no values, first of all, I think I lose credibility. <laughs> they say, you're the only person in the room who's claiming to have no values. You know, that's, that's just ridiculous. <laughs> so the, the idea that we're going to pretend you don't have values is, is something that I don't think brings you credibility. I think you're much better off to say, yeah, here, here are my values. And anytime you want to call me, you know, or is this your science speaking or your values speaking, you're welcome to ask me that. And, uh, and I'll do my best to be honest. You know what? What have we got to lose? <laughs> you know. You know. So uh, you know. If people, not everybody in the room is going to agree with me. Quite often, they will disagree with me. I'm also not the decision maker, of course. You know. So a lot of people are spending millions of bucks to get these things done. So their their values count too. So so it's not like um, my values are going to trump somebody else's <laughs> because their values. Ultimately, it's a political process. Um, so. You know, I encourage everybody, uh, you know, be as honest as you can, um, never compromise your science, never fudge your science um, to make it say what you want to say. Yeah, how would you, what would you say to somebody who says you can't do good science when you have such strong values? Well, but you can. So, so you take the, one of the hardest questions I always get is how wide does this corridor need to be? Um, you know, I, I, I just have to honestly say, I don't know. But say, uh, in, down there near Tucson, where this corridor is about uh, eight, nine kilometers long, you know, I, I tell them, here's my rationale for one kilometer. Is that I think if I ask for a one kilometer corridor and I get it, and I'm lucky enough to live another 50 years to find out if it works, I'm not gonna have remorse saying, oh gosh, darn it. Um, I needed five kilometers, <laughs> you know, uh, so it's my, what I call my no regret strategy. I think if I said, oh, 100 meters will do, I think there's a extremely high probability that I would be kicking myself uh, for having done something foolish, you know, pushed the envelope. So I, I draw the analogy, some, Paul Ehrlich drew the analogy to airplane rivets, you know, the things that hold your, the, the wings on an airplane. You know, he says, you know, only a fool would say, how few rivets might I get away with and have the wings stay on the airplane? You know, I want to have enough that I think there's no chance <laughs> this wing is coming off. So I'll tell people, that's my reason for the kilometer. I think there's almost no chance that this will fail. And I would not be comfortable saying, 
100 meters or 500 meters or even 700 meters, I think there's just too great a chance that, that it would fail. Um, so I can admit my, my, uh, my level of uncertainty. I can still advocate a position. If the decision makers who have the real money <laughs> say, well, we're only going to give you 600 meters, well, I guess I have to live with it. <laughs> but that's their decision. <laughs> so again, you know, there's, um, have I lost credibility? Um, I don't, I don't see how I have. I might not win, but that, that's the case anyway. <laughs> I'm curious in what got you interested in wildlife and conservation biology. I guess being in love with life. So, um, yeah, I, I actually, um, I'm, I'm, I'm a retread in a way. <clears throat> I was actually out of undergraduate college working as a hospital technician doing cardiology tests. Uh, cardiac catheterizations and stress tests and echocardiograms and uh, kind of enjoying life and I was in my mid-twenties and realized, um, hmm, you know, what, what do I want to do with life? <laughs> Can I see myself doing this? It's a, it's a satisfying career in some ways, but I thought, well, what do I really want to do for the next few decades? And so I you know, made a conscious choice that, uh, well, let's, I want to make a difference in the world and here's how I want to do it. Um, so for me, it was it was a very much a, a choice. Um, what do you enjoy about being a scientist? <sighs> it's fun. Yeah, so being a scientist is first and foremost all scientists. What what we seek to do is figure out how the world works. <laughs> you know, from how <laughs> much more fun can you get than that? You know, since uh, I guess one of the first scientists, Aristotle, said this is the most sublime thing humans can do. He says it's as close as we can get to being God is trying to figure out how the world works. And I think there's a long tradition of that. And then for me, I'm an applied scientist. And so I say, ah, this is, here's what's even more fun. Not only do I get to f try and figure out how the world works, but I get to try and change how the world works. <laughs> Oh, this is cool. So it's, it's what I love. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much for this interview. It's been really cool to hear about all of this different work. All right. Well, thank you. The music for our show is by Jeremy Spaulding. The Science News comes from Science Daily. Student interviews are coordinated by Chrissy Post. And the show is produced by Christina Young and KZM. Thank you.